Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you are God alone and that we can trust you, that we can come to you needy and weak because you are strong. Lord, we have tasted and seen this morning that you are good and we ask that you would continue to do that work through the preaching of your word this morning. Help us to see and taste your goodness. Your word promises that blessed is the man who takes refuge in you. And so we run to you this morning. We are incapable of putting our hope in ourselves. We often make that mistake. But we want to trust and put our hope in you. Help us to find you as our strength, as our rock and refuge. Help us as your saints to fear you alone. That you would put out any fear of man in our hearts this morning by your word. Your word says that those that fear you have no lack. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek you, Lord, lack no good thing. So as your children, we come to you this morning. Help us to pay attention to your word, to trust your word, to teach us how great and awesome you are. We love you, Lord, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. What an amazing gift we have through the Lord Jesus Christ that we can go to the Lord in prayer. Prayer is precious. Prayer is powerful. And prayer is personal. Prayer is something that reveals or exposes our hearts before God. We often schedule events and gatherings in effort to try to get to know one another, but I would argue that the best way to get to know somebody is actually through prayer. And I say that because you can really know someone's heart when they're speaking to their Heavenly Father, how they address Him, what they say about His character, how they feel toward Him, what they request from Him. This morning we are continuing our study through Philippians and are going to be looking into Paul's prayer for the church at Philippi. And what we are going to see is the heart of a servant of Christ. Paul is in chains and under persecution, living with the loss of freedoms and lack of comforts. Put yourself in Paul's sandals for a minute. What would come out of your heart? As we introduce this sermon series, Paul's theme for his letter to the Philippians is joyfully serving Christ. And we saw this in Paul's description of both himself and the church in verses 1 and 2. How it all revolved around the fact that Christ was their Lord. Jesus is their master and they are his servants. Now Paul continues in his greeting to reveal the heart of a servant of Christ. Displayed in his prayer for these Philippian believers. And this is not just something Paul wanted to let the Philippians know about. But this is God's word. He has inspired it and preserved it because we today need to know. We too, as servants of Christ, need to know what kind of heart we ought to have. And what we find in our text this morning is that joyfully serving Christ requires a God-centered heart for God's people. If you and I are going to experience joy in our identity as servants of Christ, we must have a God-centered heart for God's people. Turn with me to our text this morning in Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. 
And as we work through our text this morning, we're going to actually see three ways in which a God-centered heart for God's people is revealed. And the first way that this heart is revealed is in verses 3 through 6, where we see that joyful servants of Christ praise God for partners in the gospel. Let's read our first verses this morning. Paul writes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. In greeting the church at Philippi, Paul first and foremost directs thanks to his God. This church was often on Paul's mind, and whenever he thought of them, his attention was directed to God, both with thankfulness and joy. Paul did not direct praise to the Philippians, but instead to God. He doesn't lavish them with flattery as patrons even of his ministry, but he expresses gratitude to his God. But not only should we see who praise is directed to, but what Paul thanked God for. Paul did not thank God for the Philippians' gift, but he thanked God for the people. Multiple times in this passage, he says, you all. Look in verse 4, he says, every prayer of mine for you all. And again, later in verse 7, he'll say, for you all, for you are all. And in verse 8, how I yearn for you all. This is constantly repeated in this passage. And this was a habit of Paul's, a good habit. He constantly was thanking God, not primarily for things, but for people. Paul is thankful to God for believers in almost every letter he writes, for those who supported him, those who labored with him, those who served alongside him, and even those who were needing correction. But why did Paul thank these people? What was it that was so endearing about these people to Paul? The reason Paul praised God for these people is because they were God's people. God had been at work in them and he would continue to keep them all the way to the end. Paul was thankful and joyful about the Philippian believers because they were partners in the gospel, co-laborers for Christ. They were part of a unique Christian fellowship. They were part of the same spiritual family as Paul, and it was evidenced in their life, he says here in verse 5, from the first day until now. This faithful commitment to Christ and his gospel was the soil in which the flowers of gratitude and joy flourished in praise to God. But not only did Paul recognize the Philippians' faithful partnership in the gospel, his theology overflows here in verse 6 as he talks about the source and the sustainer of their faithful partnership. The source and sustainer was their faithful God. Look again in verse 6 how he says, And I am sure of this, that he, being God, who began a good work in you, who began this partnership in the gospel, who has saved them and redeemed them, he, this God, is the one who will bring it to completion, who will sustain them, and bring it all the way 
to the end of the day of Jesus Christ. This is a common theme we see all throughout Scripture. In Psalm 40, 11, the psalmist writes, As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. The psalmist knew of God's preserving grace. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to verse 24. He, God, who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. Paul's writing to this church in Thessalonica, and he is confident in God's faithfulness to complete the work that he has started in his children. One more, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, Paul's writing again, he says, Our Lord Jesus Christ will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The assurance of Paul, the confidence of Paul that this salvation will be completed is based on the character of their God. Their God is faithful and he will do it. This is why Paul says in verse 3, I thank my God for them. He doesn't praise them, he thanks God because it's God who has worked, is working, and will complete his work in these fellow servants of Christ. Paul calls these believers his joy and crown because they are firmly planted in Christ. And Christ is Paul's Lord. Christ is Paul's master. Christ is Paul's life. For the kids listening in the room this morning, considering these verses, a good question to ask yourself, what do I thank God for? What am I thankful to God for? We should thank God for the many blessings in our lives. But do you thank God for the people in your life? You know what would be awesome for you kids? If you went around to the adults you know or maybe meeting new people and you say, what has God done in your life recently that I can thank him for? What an amazing question that would be. For seasoned saints in the room, How often do you thank God for the work he is doing in the lives of other believers? Are you looking for God's faithfulness on display in the lives of believers around you? Do you seek to see it? And do you thank God for it? Could you look in the row beside you and list ten things that you're thankful to God for that he's doing in their life today? This morning we've seen why Paul prayed. He prayed because joyful servants of Christ should praise God for partners in the gospel. But as we continue in our text this morning, we get to peek further behind the curtain of Paul's heart. We get to see how he prayed for these believers. And the heart revealed here in verses 7 and 8 is that joyful servants of Christ are passionate for God's people. They're passionate for God's people. Let's look in verse 7 and 8. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, 
because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Upon reflection of his joy in the Philippian believers, Paul bursts out in defense of his feelings toward them. Listen to the logical progression of Paul's passion here. I feel joy because you are in my heart, and our hearts are knit together because we are both experiencing God's grace as suffering servants of Christ. Later in this very same chapter, in verse 30, he says that they are engaged in the same conflict. You see, the Philippians were experiencing persecution, experiencing opposition and imprisonment as well. They were Roman citizens living in a Roman colony, but their supreme loyalty was not to Rome. Caesar was not their Lord. Christ was. Paul is so passionate in his love for these believers that he makes an oath in verse 8, as if to say, I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. Or God himself knows this is truly how I feel for you all. But the content of his oath here in verse 8 is what's truly astonishing. Let's read it again. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. I love how Alec Modier explains this text. He says, The wording demands something more than the notion of mere imitation. Paul is saying that he is so advanced in his union with Christ that it is as if Christ were expressing his love through Paul. Two hearts are beating as one. Indeed, one heart, the greater, has taken over and the emotional constitution of Christ himself has taken possession of his servant. Paul overflowed with love of Christ for the Philippians because he himself was drenched in the love of Christ. A mark of a spiritual believer, a spiritual mature believer we've been talking about in our youth group even, is that they love what God loves and they hate what God hates. Paul's life was all about the gospel of Jesus Christ and he loved the gospel. And because the Philippians were all about the gospel, Paul loved them with the powerful love of Christ. Paul doesn't love the Philippian believers here because of what they had done for him, but because of what God had done in them. In Paul's thinking here, there's this sort of tripod-type relationship between God, the Philippians, and himself, and the hinge that holds it all together in his mind is the gospel. He was so fixated on the gospel that it informed the way he saw people. People who have the gospel, people who advance the gospel, people who bear fruit in the gospel, people who need encouraged by the gospel, and even people who need to believe the gospel. This is how Paul was seeing people. In light of this truth, let me ask you, does the love of Christ overflow in your heart for your fellow believer here at Redemption Hill? 
Or do you find it hard to love people this way? Maybe this morning, the way you would phrase it is, well, I just I feel kind of lonely or disconnected. I'm not really just meshing well with others. If I could talk to the women... Don't fall prey to the temptation that you just need your discipleship soulmate. Your partner is the bride of Christ. Look around the room. Look around the room and see the other women. If they are gods, then do discipleship with them. You don't need this perfect compatibility. Love them with the love of Christ. When we set aside expectations or ideals for compatibility and focus on seeing people through God's eyes, the fruit in your life will be gratitude with joy and you will pour out the love of Christ on your fellow partners in the gospel. Is it hard work? Yes. Is it messy? Yes. Is it costly? Yes. Is it worth it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Men don't think you get off the hook. Many times we think to ourselves, I don't know people very well, or I'm not very outgoing, I'm not very mushy, I'm just really busy with stuff, I I don't have time to get involved in other people's lives, or a common one you might hear is, I just don't have a lot in common with these people. Listen to Paul's logic. Listen to God's word this morning to you. What is being communicated is that if you are a believer in Christ and he is a believer in Christ, you have everything eternally valuable in common in Christ. Everything. We often fail to remember this crucial fact and we get caught up in temporary and superficial labels like work, hobbies, likes, dislikes, preferences, personality types. But if you are in Christ, there ought to be an evident, warm affection for those who have also embraced Christ as their master. Paul knew nothing of an impersonal, disconnected church. Don't wait for others to love you this way. Be willing to love others this way. And the way you start doing that is by praying for grace and by thinking about people in relation to the gospel. And then you will start seeing them with a God-centered heart. A second warning we find in these verses this morning. You've often heard it said, we are not united by what we're against, but by what we're for. And although this statement can be misused, it is true. Those who misuse this statement often forget that we should not primarily or exclusively be united by what we're against, but by what what we're against should flow out of, rather, what we are for. When we are primarily against fill-in-the-blank, pick your choice, there's tons of options right now. There always will be. The result of that will be bitterness, anger, discontentment, sorrow, and it won't last. But... When you are primarily united for the gospel of Jesus Christ, the fruit that will be born in your lives, according to this text, will be thankfulness to God with joy for others. And the love of Christ for our fellow believers will grow. 
Paul's praise to God and passion for other believers ties together beautifully as we continue in our text this morning. He's expressed a tender and confident heart for these believers at Philippi, but Paul proceeds to communicate now the content of his prayer. What does someone with the affection of Christ pray for a fellow believer? The heart we see revealed here in verses 9 through 11 is that joyful servants of Christ petition God for growth. They petition God for growth. Look with me at verses 9 through 11. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Paul is praying here to God. Paul's asking God to produce love in the lives of these believers, but he is not asking due to a lack. Rather, he is praying that the already evident love in their lives would continue to abound more and more, both for God and for others. But not only does Paul desire for their love to grow here in verse 9, he desires for it to grow with knowledge, he says. This love that Paul is praying for these Philippian believers is not mere sentiment, not mere emotion, but rather is to be rooted in the truth of who God is. Paul used this word, knowledge, in all his letters, and each time it refers to a knowledge of God and of Christ. Our culture often pits love and knowledge against each other, but Scripture presents them as inseparably linked. Listen to how Frank Sheed explains this biblical union. It would be a strange God who could be loved better by being known less. Let me say that again. It would be a strange God who could be loved better by being known less. If a man loves God knowing a little about him, he should love God more for knowing more about him. For every new thing known about God is a new reason for loving him. Think about when you're in a dating relationship. It's new, it's exciting. You are dying to know everything possible about this other person. Favorite color, favorite food, doesn't matter, it's the main reason I love you today. It's just, you're just blown out of your mind about how perfect you are together with every little piece of information you get to know. But what we see sadly happen in marriages is there's this, well, I'm, I'm, I know enough about my spouse now. I'm kind of on cruise control. Friends, this is a relationship pothole that is spiritually dangerous. We cannot grow in our love for God if we do not seek to know him as he has revealed himself in his word. He has provided everything we need for life and godliness, yet we often become ensnared with the cares, concerns, and rationale of this world. The solution, though, is not to plug our ears to the world, but rather to open our hearts to God's word so that we can boldly open our mouths to this world, both in truth and in love. But with knowledge here in verse 9, Paul adds, all discernment. 
Discernment is insight that informs practical conduct. The reason Paul wants them to overflow in love and grow in knowledge is so that they are equipped for practical living. How often we seek quick answers to immediate circumstances. We live in a fast food society that has 30 second YouTube videos on how to do anything. So when we're in a struggle with a specific sin habit in our lives or we're going through a trial of undesirable circumstances, when we're trying to decide what school to attend or whether we should get married to this person, we just kind of freak out and get frustrated and just say, I I just want the solution. What's the answer? If we are to be ready day in and day out to make God-honoring decisions, we must be growing in our love and knowledge of who God is. When our hearts and our minds are full of Christ, our hands and our mouths will show it. And this is what Paul indicates here as we continue into verse 10. He says the goal here in verse 10 is, so that you may approve what is excellent. It is often rightly said that the Christian life is not so much about choosing between right and wrong as it is about choosing between what is good and what is best. This is what Paul is praying for the Philippians because he knows what is coming. And now for the second time in our passage this morning, he mentions the day of Christ. There's a very similar passage in 1 Thessalonians 3, 12 through 13 that says, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. The end game was always in Paul's mind, whether it was in prayer or instruction. And the reason Paul prays for these things is so that they live rightly now for the day of Christ. He even describes the end goal, what the judge of all the earth, that is, desires for us as believers. To be pure and blameless, he says in verse 10. Pure and blameless. Pure meaning unmixed motives or sincere motives. An example could be seen in serving. Do I serve others so that I can get praise in return? Or so that I can be perceived a certain way to look good or look or impress others? Or am I seeking to serve because I want to love the Lord and love others sacrificially? Blameless. Blameless means not offending or causing one to stumble. There's this idea of anybody that accuses you in the world that it doesn't stick. So for us, an example would be um, if you say you're a Christian, but you cheat on that test or you're gossiping behind somebody's back about your coworker at work. Other people look on and say, well, being like a Christian sure looks a lot like this world they say that they're so different from. But not only pure and blameless horizontally, think vertically for a minute, and that's most important because what we must recognize is that all of this is evaluated by a holy and righteous judge. 
How we as believers live today matters because one day we will be seated before the King of Kings and every single thing will be laid out, bare open before Christ. He is the one we are evaluated by. It matters. And the desired result in the end for believers when we stand before the throne, we would be presented to the Lord, Paul says in verse 11, look with me, says, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul desires that on that day, we may lay our crowns, the crowns of Christ's righteousness at his feet because he alone is worthy of praise and glory and honor. This section 3 through 11 here, it starts with Paul thanking his God and it ends with to the glory and praise of God because everything in between points to how central God is in the life of a servant of Christ. In light of these truths, let me ask you, do you pray for your fellow believers to grow? Do you get involved to help them grow in love and knowledge and discernment? Paul yearned for these believers with the affection of Christ, and he prayed this for them, but he wanted to be with them. He wanted to be a part of it, to see God's grace in their lives, to work with them to grow towards maturity. Are you actively helping others to grow to be more like Christ? That is our mission. We must be about the gospel of Jesus Christ, which saves the lost through the Spirit of God. He does the work. And we ought to be about discipling one another and growing in maturity towards Christ's likeness now. Second point of application. Did you see here in uh, verse 10 how Paul connects his eschatology with his sanctification? He says, The day of the Lord is meant to motivate personal holiness. So our question is, how do you feel about studying the end times? Seems to be typically two camps, those that love it and those that don't. So first, the love it's. Does studying end times cause you to look at the world or to look at your own heart? Second Peter chapter 3, verses 10 and 11 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And then Peter applies this eschatology in verse 11. He says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness. That ought to be the end result as we look at how the story ends to say, Lord, help me. Help me to live a life that is pleasing to you because it matters today. How about the don'ts? 
Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. This is how we're supposed to live now, sanctification. And then in verse 13 he says, Waiting for a blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Maybe an illustration would be helpful here. It's like running a race. If I'm running and I turn around to look at the stuff around or I'm looking down at my shoelaces or evaluating my outfit, whatever it is, I'm going to slow down. But if I'm fixed on the finish line, both my form for running and my motivation for running are perfectly lined up. That's the idea. And don't miss out on this piece of what God's word says is meant to motivate us for godliness today. Ask for God's grace and know his word and his knowledge. And the pair together will give you discernment in this life to live a godly life that's pleasing to the Lord. This morning we've talked a lot about a God-centered heart. But there are likely some here today whose heart is actually at war with God. Maybe you've been listening and thinking this morning, I've lived a pretty good life compared to a majority of people, and I'm just going to keep on doing what I think is best, and I'm sure God will see that as enough. Or maybe this morning you're thinking, this is great, I just need to really love more and learn more and read, and then God will be pleased with me and eternity will be covered. Got my insurance plan. Hear me this morning. According to God's word, what you do will never be enough. Because man cannot save himself. Scripture says that you are unclean before God. And that you need a bath. Scripture calls it filthy rags. It's like saying, I need a bath, and so I have this rag of throw-up, and that is supposed to help me somehow get cleaner. It won't work. What you need is to be perfect. What you need is to be holy and blameless before a perfect and righteous judge, and you know it. Your conscience says it, Scripture says it, you've already blown it. You have sinned against a righteous and holy judge who created you, who provides every breath you take. And this all-powerful God commands you to repent. He commands you to repent. But here's the good news for you this morning. Ephesians says, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. This affection of Christ in our text this morning, this great love of God that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to take the place of sinners. Your sin deserves death and the wrath of God, and that's exactly what was poured out on Christ at the cross. As our text says in verse 11 this morning, there's this righteousness, this right standing before a holy God. It comes through the one and only Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can make you right before God. 
It's only through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ that you can receive peace with God, that you can receive a certain hope for eternity and joyful endurance in this life for the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's grace for sinners. This is an amazing gift. And the question is, do you want it? If not, what is keeping you from Christ this morning? But if yes, run to the Lord in prayer. Run to the Lord and confess your sins, turning in faith to Christ alone, whose precious blood can wash away your sins. And you will experience the growing love talked about here. You will experience reading God's word and hungering and thirsting for righteousness and knowing who he is. And your life will be transformed as you submit to Christ as your Lord and master. Lastly, I'd just like to say a word of personal testimony and encouragement about this text this morning. For those of you who are trusting Christ here at Redemption Hill, I want you to know that this text was my prayer for you this week. I spent time praying for you all by name and thanking God for you. And it was amazing to see how God's grace is real. God's grace rips away the selfishness, the distractions of good ministry goals, events, and tasks, and says, I want to see what God's doing in the lives of these people. And it's amazing how his word is really true. And I want you to experience that yourselves, to look outside of the busyness of this world, to look at the people around you, and to praise God for it. You'll see a transformation in your heart. And I wanted to tell you guys this morning, there is an evident affection of Christ in the heart of this church. And my prayer overflowed, saying, God, I want that to abound more and more as we dig into your word to know you more. Let that love abound in our church with knowledge and discernment and insight as we seek to love one another and be a light to this lost world. So, Hear that as an encouragement this morning. Thank you. Thank God for his work in you and continue to run the race. We've seen this morning that the heart of a servant of Christ praises God for partners in the gospel, that it is passionate for God's people and it petitions God for growth. Friends, this is the heart of a joyful servant of Christ. This is a God-centered heart for God's people. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you because we would be so lost apart from you. And even there, there's amazing blessings that overflow in Christ for us, that we are not alone in this race, that you have given us a family. You've given us a spirit that guides us in truth. And we ask, Lord, that the love in our church would abound more and more with knowledge and discernment because we want to live lives. We want to live lives that choose the excellent thing. Live lives that are pure and blameless so that our testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ would be blameless so that the Spirit can work through the gospel to change hearts and minds 
that you would save many for your glory. And I pray that in our lives there would be a fruitfulness, a fruitfulness in the righteousness of Christ, that this wouldn't be a pick ourselves up by the bootstraps, but instead depend fully on your grace. We love you, Lord, and we pray all this in the precious name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.